On today's episode of Way Too Interested, writer Zito Matu tells us about his curiosity and interest in animal navigation. Let's get into it. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Way Too Interested, the podcast where we talk to interesting people, ask them about a subject they're currently obsessed with outside of their everyday lives. Then the two of us talk to an expert in that subject matter, do a deep dive and learn a whole lot more about it. Um, it's a show about curiosity, discovery, creativity, and most importantly, pursuing those little things that get stuck in your brain and end up being way more fascinating than you ever imagined. My name is Gavin Purcell. This is my first run of these. I'm doing 10 of them to kind of see how it goes. I've never made a podcast before, so I hope you're enjoying it. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've been listening, thank you. I think this is episode five right now, so or maybe six. Uh, we'll, we'll see where I end up at, but thanks again for listening. To remind everybody, each week at the top of each show, I talk to my guest first about their creativity and discovery processes, trying to find a little bit more about what makes them tick. Um, in this particular episode, Zito is so interesting to me. Um, he's a, one of the best Twitter users um, I've ever followed, by the way. You have to follow him. He is at underscore Zietz, Z-E-E-T-S. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Like One of the things we get into in the podcast is we talk about poetry quite a bit. And to me... There isn't enough talk. I know this poetry could be like boring and everybody may have different opinions about it, but it actually can be really interesting. And Zito finds really interesting pieces of poems and we'll publish them there. So anyway, he's great. I hope you listen to this. I think it's really good. Um, here are three other interesting facts about Zito, one of which I may have just stolen from, but we'll see. Number one, as we get into the podcast, Zito is one of the most prolific readers I've ever met. When we were recording this behind him, he has stacks and stacks and stacks of books. And it's not only the volume of the stuff he consumes, but but what he's reading. It's it's some of the stuff is super dense. Anyway, this dude is reading way above my level and it's super interesting. I remember when I talked to him about uh, this episode and our guest had written the book, he's like, oh, I'm going to have to read that. I was like, of course, well, you've read a thousand other books. Why not this one? Number two, I got to know Zito originally from his sports writing. He actually um, is a freelance sports writer, wrote for SB Nation when I was uh, working there, and I think still does some stuff for them. But there's definitely a profile that I find is just sublime and you have to check out. It's a GQ profile he did of the Miami Heat's Jimmy Butler. Google Zito Madu. Uh, Jimmy Butler, and you'll find it. Shout out to Elena Bergeron, who introduced me to Zito and Zito's writing in the first place. And then number three, as I mentioned, uh, we will talk a fair amount about this here, but Zito reads and quotes a lot of poetry. And, and as I said, I think poetry kind of gets a bad rap overall. I'm a big believer in the power of poems, and Zito surfaces a ton of it on his excellent, excellent Twitter handle, at underscore Zietz, Z-E-E-T-S. And that Twitter handle has brought a lot of joy in my life. I've said this to him both publicly and in privately. I believe he's one of my top 10 or 15 Twitter follows of all time. He's that good on Twitter, and, and I really hope you go follow him. Okay, let's get into this conversation um, and then stick around. Uh, we have our expert coming up later on. Welcome, Zito, to uh, Way Too Interested. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, yeah, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to finally meet you. Of course. Yeah. That, that's one of my favorite things about this is Zito and I have never met in person. In fact, that's one of the things that's great about this podcast is I'm able to do this with a lot of people that I've known mostly on 
uh, online. And as I've said to you, I think publicly and, and privately now, you're one of my favorite Twitter follows. You are just so interesting. Also, you're very prolific on Twitter. You tweet a lot, which is also helpful. So you show up in the feed a lot. <laughs> so uh, your his Twitter handle is at underscore Zietz. And Zietz makes sense, but I'm assuming somebody else had Zietz, so you had to add the underscore in there? Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible. Who would have known that somebody would have Zietz? And like Zietz is, is such a ridiculous nickname that my former editor one day in our company Slack just started calling calling me that just to bully me somehow. <laughs> He's just like, I'm going to call you Zietz from now on. And he kept doing it and everybody just picked it up. And then I was like, well, fine. I'll just change that to my name. <laughs> now you're Zietz from now on. Okay, I want to get into one thing that I think is fascinating about you to me. You read so much, right? Like, I mean, I just the other day you put you put out a, a, a list of tweets about some of the books in books in your shelves, and obviously, um, you can maybe can't see this at home when you're listening, but um, you have a lot of books behind you. What does your like reading habits look like? What are your daily reading habits look like? Do you spend, you know, is that the majority of time you spend per day? Do you read that much? Uh, not well. It, it I'm such a structureless person <laughs> in a terrible way, so. My reading habits is just, I have so much time at work where there's like nothing to do. And when you're working from home, you don't have to pretend to be doing stuff. And so it's just like, I think a lot of people do the thing where they try to set away time to read. But I think it's always beneficial to just like, if it's five or 10 minutes, right? Like you read five pages or like 10 pages or however many pages, you're just progressively going through the book. And right, like, so it's just the thing. I'm just like, I have these books around me. If I'm reading whatever, I just always have it around. And so I'm just like flipping through it, whatever, whatever time's available. But also, I have like, I think my only structure is that like, I understand when I can't read heavy or long books because of, you know, however I'm feeling at the time or whatever's happening in the world. Like, you know, during the pandemic, it was really hard for me to read the hard, long books. And so I just switched to like my poetry books a lot. Like, so in this year's, I think I'm like at 27 books this year, which is very, very slow because in the first two months I was at like 15 (laughs) and then it slowed down considerably because, you know, work stuff. But a lot of it, I think is poetry just because of the fact that I know if I read like three poems, I'll just think about those for the rest of the day. So it's not even that it's faster, but it's just a different speed. And so like when I'm struggling with one type of book, I have so many different types of books, I'll just switch. Like sometimes it's easier for me to read fiction. Sometimes it's like easier for me to read a bunch of nonfiction stuff, but I always keep poetry around. That's like my main thing. It's so funny. That was going to be my next question because I, in college, studied and wrote some poetry and I haven't done it for a long time, but I really love reading it for the density of it because you really can within, you know, a page of text kind of like get a lot out of it. What drew you into poetry originally? What do you remember? Like, what was the thing that kind of got you started on it? Uh, I'm not even particularly sure. Like, I think, I think if, if we traced it, it would be like, you know, reading metamorphoses or whatever, like the long, the, the long things like that are just epic poems, right? Like <laughs> there is still poetry, but I've just, I, I just think poetry is just, you know, a phenomenal genre of writing. The thing that I like about poetry so much is that poets get to do like silly stuff that 
in any other genre people would think is weird. Like in a, in a poem, a poet could be like, I am the friend of trees and start talking intimately about trees. If I put that in prose or nonfiction, people are just like, you're weird as shit. But if I put that in poetry, it's just like, look at this language. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just the thing of like being somebody who's interested in language, somebody who's a writer, someone who wants to be a better writer. It's like poets get to experiment and change language in a way that a lot of prose and like nonfiction writers are kind of afraid to. And so it's like the W.G. Sabal thing is like, if you want to be a great prose writer, you have to read a lot of poetry, right? Like it's, it's, it's just like, you have to read poetry. You have to like, just turn it, find a way to turn your own poetry into like longer narrative things. And so like, I think a lot of my favorite writers tend to end up being good poets as well, right? Like Brodsky is one of them where you read his nonfiction or you read his nonfiction stuff or his novels and you're just like, eh, this guy's a poet. And then you read his poetry, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. One of my other things, my favorite things about poetry is I'm a big William Carlos Williams fan. And like, I love Pretty just- sure I have his books back there. <laughs> is the best. What I love about it is it's snapshots of things, right? Like you can just like, you can dial in, in the way that a really amazing painting is too, right? Like you can just see a small little sliver of something and take so much away from it. Again, it's almost like a minimalist maximalist thing. Like it's a minimalist image, but a maximalist interpretation it can come from it. And I think there's, you're able to put so much of yourself into it, which is cool too. Yeah, and I think that is the entire point of so much of my regular writing that people tend to like, right? Like, if I'm writing about a fox, like the fox essay that I had, it's about this particular encounter with the fox, right? Like, And so the problem that I always have is, like, especially with, you know, internet writing, is this explainer and, like, solving method of writing, right? Like, if I'm writing about rubber ducks, I'm writing about the history of rubber ducks, why people like them so much, where they came from, right? It's just, like, this information. It's just always to give information. And so what I like so much about poetry is what you're saying is just, like, if I'm writing about a shipwreck, I'm writing about a shipwreck. This shipwreck that I'm seeing, like, what I'm feeling about this shipwreck, like, you know, the experience of being there and seeing this thing. And so even like a lot of my sports writing, like a lot of my profile writing tended to be like that, where it's like, I'm not writing about the narratives or the meanings or the, you know, the assigned ideas of this thing. I want to write about this thing. And so it's always such a fruitful thing of like trying to whittle away so much of the excess in order to like see this thing almost as if it's like new again. Yeah. And so I think that's that's one of the things that I learned about poetry is like if you see a bird, write about the bird. Don't write about everything else about the bird. Write about this like experience of seeing this bird. Uh, I completely agree. Uh, let's let's transition a little bit to this topic. I want to get into this a little bit. But before we do, I do want to ask you, since the podcast is really about discovering new things and kind of getting out of your um your circle of interest and in trying to think about other things. How do you go about like, like changing or, or pursuing your curiosities? Like when do you, when you discover something, how do you kind of feel that thing is like, I want to learn more about it? Well, I think things, there's just so many interesting things, right? Like I think it was like Isaac Newton who had that, like a very particular quote about the way that he lives his life is like being like a kid and by the, by the shore of the water and then just seeing shiny stones all the time. And just like, these are the things that he's discovering. And he, so I, I tend to be like that where I could just be reading whatever, even if it's in a book 
And that's how I tend to discover writers as well. But everything else where it's like, ah, this is interesting. I want to write, a, like, I want to read about like Japanese incense. And then next thing you know, I'm like, and it's not just like the very bingey idea of just like, I want to binge read all of this and know all of it. It's just like, no, this is interesting. And then you tend to learn so much about the the world again. Was, for example, it was, uh, I think recently was like this, like weird thing in St. Louis that veiled profit ceremony nonsense. Oh, yes. Yes. I yeah, did yeah, read yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. Which I'd never heard of in my life. Yeah. So it was just like this idea that this veiled profit ceremony is like this white supremacist like festival, whatever, which people were making the distinction. Like, it's not white supremacist. It's just this festival for like elitist white people to, <laughs> to basically transform their environment without you know and it's like well if you're looking at the definition of what white supremacist is but anyway so the bell profit thing was a big you know was like taking over twitter for a while and it was interesting and because it was like related to a famous actress but then i remember i was reading it and i was like wait but there's like something a little bit more interesting about this like yeah like the ceremony is weird and it's like white supremacist but so I, like I ended up getting one of the books, the, one of the only books that's written about the thing. And that oh, night wow. I ended up reading it. And this is, it was such an incredible illustration of what's how St. Louis became what it is. And why does like Vell profit then is actually this entry way into understanding the labor disputes that have shaped St. Louis as it has been. And so I was like, no, but like, this idea, the festival is like the least interesting part about this. This is about how like this elitist class has been shaping St. Louis and creating all these obstacles for like these antagon like antagonistic obstacles for the working class. Like the, the working class people used to throw stones during the festivals every year because like it was it was an outright kind of like fight between these two between these two factions. And so which is why the Bell Prophet then ended up, they kept trying to like uh, rebrand it as something else, as like more about the culture of St. Louis and about history. Huh. Because like it's, it's, it was created, especially the idea of like these rich people coming together was to break a labor strike. And then they've used all of these things to promote like their power and et cetera, et cetera. And so I was reading it and I ended up reading the book, like the, the whole book. And I was like, that's incredible. I learned so much about St. Louis in one night. That's I think part of like the heart of why I want to do this podcast, because I believe that happens on a really regular basis if you pursue these things. Right. And I think part of the thing is, is making that it's not even a leap. It's like a small step, but you just have to kind of get past that initial curiosity into like, okay, I want to pursue this thing a little bit. And then you don't have to do it for everybody or everything. You just have to find the things that are interesting. And then it opens up this entire world. Like, I think that's the thing I'm sometimes like shocked by. And I shouldn't be because it's not. But like, sometimes people tell me like, how do you read all these things? Or how do you watch all these things? And it's like, I'm just kind of always following little pathways in my life down to different things. And I think that to me is what makes my life worth living other than my family. Obviously, family is a good thing too. But it just makes life feel alive to do that sort of thing yeah and like i feel it's the thing of like if you really want to understand the world right like it, there's so much you know the world is like incredibly complex there's just so much complexity and you just have to keep it's always much more than what you think it is right like there was a i have a book called scattered sand 
that I, I think I read like 2014 or whatever. And I remember it was because I was reading a, a Jap, like a, a Chinese poem and I had read it and it was, it was talking about a very like, you know, like migrant experience within China itself. And then, so I like, I looked up the, the poet and then I looked up what she, like what she was talking about. And so it ended up leading me to this book. And it's this incredible book about like, how so much of the Chinese workforce inside China are just like in-country migrants who move from like the like one part of China to like you know the bigger cities every year to work and et cetera, et cetera. And it was like these like very personal first person, not even first person, but like interviews and like these stories about all these individual people who were you know representative of like this larger whole. So you had like these people who were going on strike. One of the saddest ones was like this one guy. He was like a young 20 something year old who left his village and, you know, he was going to go to a big city to find work. Blah, blah. But like the main reason he was leaving is because he had fallen in love with this like girl who was whose family was from the big city. And they were like so in love. And like he, he decided like he gave up everything from his village. He sold everything and he was going to go. He's going to find a job and he was going to make their life work. And he gets there. And he meets her family and her family instantly rejects him oh. and because he's a villager, right? Like yeah, right. he's a peasant and they reject him. And all she could do for him was to give him a little bit of money to go home. And he tried to find so many jobs, but they were all like these menial jobs. And they were so, it was so demeaning to him, especially now like his main reason for being in the city was gone. And so he ended up moving back to the village and he had this quote when the writer was interviewing him where he said for his first big attempt at love he learned a very valuable lesson which is that the mark of being a peasant is something that can never be taken away mm. and it was the saddest thing <laughs> but it was one of those things where like i had never thought about like the labor problems within china like the fact that like most chinese workers are you know migrants from the the country itself and so it's just this thing from like this one poem and next thing you know i'm reading about i'm feeling sorry for individual migrants but yeah i think you know if you follow any string like that that's really really interesting you will learn so much more about the world I think that's a perfect transition because I felt the exact same way about this topic. So but let's jump into this. So um, let's go. Zito, please stay your name and tell me what you are way too interested in. My name is Zito Madu, and I'm way too interested in animal navigation. Okay, this is amazing. So just to go back to what you just said, I think I took animal navigation for granted. I will say that out right. Um, I read, uh, well, our guest today is coming on. I, I was reading this book, Super Navigators, and in doing prep for this podcast, I really did start learning some stuff about animal navigation. But let's talk about you. Why, what, what was interesting about this and how did you get into this topic? What was interesting about it is like there's, there's that old adage that dogs always find their way home that I always thought that that's such a funny thing because, you know, you see it all the time. Dogs do know how to get back home. And so, like, I think that's just a normal thing that we have in our culture that, like, dogs have this, like, super sense of direction. But I, I think my first one was, I don't know what the first one particularly was, but I know the major one was pigeons because I was reading about, you know, like, everybody trashes pigeons, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, my, my entire thing was, like, I always know animals are much more interesting than people give them credit for. And, like, I'm, all, I'm so interested in what, like, 
you know, the unsolvable question of like, what does it mean to be a bat? Right. Which, which is such like a metaphysical question. <laughs> That's a great question, question of, by the way. Yeah, I think it's, what does it mean to be any animal really in some ways, right? Yeah. So, cause it's a metaphysical question is like, it's really hard as a human being to even relate to another human being because like your experience in your entire mind is different, but at least we share some connections of like how you experience the world, like bodily and like mentally. But with an animal, it's just like a completely different thing that you can't even imagine because there's no idea of what this is. Like, there's no way for you to actually frame it, except for like in a, in a very scientific way of like computational, right? It's like, they're working off instinct, blah, blah, blah. But it, it gives you no idea of like, how does a bat experience the world, right? And so when the problem of pigeons used to come up, I was just like, Every animal, even the smallest one, is just weird as shit in some way. And I know pigeons have something going for them. And I remember I was, uh, I ended up reading this like London Review of Books essay that talked about the history, like the incredible history of pigeons and why they were used. I think it was World War One, why they were so essential in like World War One, because pigeons have the best like homing. I think a homing or honing system, like they can find their way back from anywhere. And so they made perfect uh, creatures for like delivering messages, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was like, of course, <laughs> of course there had to be something about <laughs> pigeons. But it's this thing of like a creature like a pigeon that seems so like a rat on wings, basically. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah. it has this incredible sense of direction. And so I was like, if a pigeon has this, if a pigeon can find his way home across the oceans, then I know other animals are just doing like incredibly weird stuff with their sense of direction as well. And I think the next one was like some sort of beetle that found his way through like trying, like through the stars itself or just like through yeah. the system it's like of the, the Milky, Milky way. way. They, they look at, they look at the Milky way. Right. Which is crazy. That's the thing I learned yeah. from David's book, which I didn't know. Yeah, and so I'm looking at a beetle, and I'm like, you are able to do, like, the wildest thing in the world. And me, I need at least to check this Google Maps every two seconds, or I'm going to turn on the wrong street. And so it's things like that. It's like, once you start looking, you know, going through that, and, like, you look at how buffalo herds generationally go through the same spaces and how, you know, the urban destruction or whatever isn't just messing up their homes, but it's also messing up their sense of direction completely. And so it's like, you start there and next thing you know, you're realizing how really incredible it is for animals just to find, you know, going from one place to another, which seems so simple, but if for them is like using the most incredible sense of navigation you'll ever see. Going back to taking it for granted, I think that I thought because humans kind of figured out some of this stuff early on. And now obviously we've progressed to, and I think Dave will probably talk about this, how we've progressed so far that we're losing some of our basic sense of regular direction. But one of the things that was shocking to me was just how much of this um, animal navigation was outside of our understanding of what it could be. Like, I think one of the most fascinating things I want to ask David about is the magnetic being driven by the magnetic fields in the earth. Like yeah, there's a lot of animals. I mean that's that. crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it makes no sense that an animal is just like, yes, I sense the, the magnetosphere of the earth. And that's how I used to get around. And I'm just sitting here like, I don't feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, that's okay. Dave's going to hop on soon. What do you want to know specifically? What are some of the things you want to, you want to find out? Well, I want to know the 
not even the craziest, but like the, the wildest animal, like the most incredible one, right? But, you know, I think each, each one tends to be for the specific life of that animal. And so I think like the most impressive one, but also it's just like, why is this so different from for them than it is for humans, right? Like, why is it that like, because I feel like for a lot of things, we are kind of stunted. And the more, you know, technology-based we become, the you know, the more stunted we are in there. But like, why is this such a big difference between how they can do the simplest things versus like how we struggle to do like the same things? Okay, great. Well, we're going to come right back and we will be joined by our expert today, whose name is David Barry. He's the author of the book, Super Navigators, uh, Exploring the Wonders of How Animals Find Their Way. Uh, and also he wrote another great book called Sextant, which you should check out. We'll be right back. Way too interested. All right. In just a second, we will be joined by David Barry, who is the author of a book called Super Navigators, Exploring the Wonders How Animals Find Their Way. But before we do that, I've been doing a thing in the middle of the show instead of an ad break, which I may take ads when I make more of these. Right now, I don't have ads because this is just me making them. I've been shouting out books that I think are really worth reading in this space. And I mean in this space, I mean in the discovery space, in the creative space, in trying to kind of open your brain up into more. And I actually have a shelf of books I'm looking over at me because I haven't figured out which one I'm going to do for this one. Hold on. Give me one second. Let's see. All right. This is a book actually by another podcaster. I'm not sure how I came across his work, but this is a book by Todd Henry, who has a company and and runs um, a couple very good podcasts. And this book is called The Accidental Creator how to be brilliant in a moment's notice. One of the things this book does, I think, is it really opens up the idea about just like how anybody can be creative and how to access that stuff and how to access those ideas. Because I think a lot of people in their brains get this sense that like, I can't be creative. I can't figure it out. I don't know what I'm doing. And I think so much of that is what gets in the way of it all. Uh, One of the things I'm really interested in getting at in the heart of this podcast is how diversions and interesting ideas and things that we think about can be pathways to that creativity. So for instance, this episode, we're going to talk about animal navigation and like this just opens up a whole nother element of things that you may not have thought about recently. And then it will fold back into your own work. So anyway, I highly recommend this book, The Accidental Creative, How to Be Brilliant at a Moment's Notice by Todd Henry. Go look for his podcast. They're very good. And now let's return to our conversation. Uh, We're about to be joined by David Barry, and let's get back to it. Welcome back, everybody. We are now joined by David Barry, the author of Super Navigators, uh, Exploring the Wonders of How Animals Find Their Way. Um, He is our expert on our topic on animal navigation. Thank you for joining us, David. It's great to be with you. I'm going to just ask one question to kick it off, then I'll kind of let Zito go, because I know he's got some questions for you too. But I kind of want to start with, um, you know, this podcast is really a little bit about discovering curiosities and following through on them. What what got you into this topic originally? Well, when I was a really small kid, like five or six, I got interested in a kind of particularly insects, butterflies and moths and and stuff like that. And I Partly because I was encouraged by my, my, my grandfather and I also had this wonderful teacher at school who was really knowledgeable about all that stuff and and kind of uh, – he ran a moth trap at the school. <laughs> and when we came in in the morning, uh, in the summer months, you know, we the first thing we'd do is go to the moth trap and we'd look at all the moths that had been attracted to the light. And Mr. Stedman, that was his name, he would 
talk us through it and say, well, that's this and that's that. And so I got I got really interested in in insects, especially moths back then. And truth is, I still am. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done a whole lot of different things in my life. I've been a diplomat. I've run an arts festival. Um, I've run a, an art charity. I've worked on campaigning on criminal justice reform here in the UK and on drug policy reform. I've written books. And I studied experimental psychology at college. And that included quite a lot of animal behavior stuff. And I'm a sailor. Perhaps the most important thing is I, I was. <laughs> I, so I I learned how to navigate at sea, and and in fact, I, I wrote a book called Sextant, uh, which uh, is all about how celestial navigation works and how it completely transformed the way human beings found their way around, and it led eventually to the first accurate maps being made of the world, and so on and so forth. So. I kind of, uh, you know, I, I've been interested in insects and animals and animal behavior. I'm interested in navigation. I'm very slow. I eventually realized I needed to bring the two things together and <laughs> find out more about the science of animal navigation. And I didn't really know what a big thing I was biting off. It was huge, huge. I've got about 2,000 scientific papers on my computer. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> And it's going up all the time, I mean, because they've come out. In fact, this week has been a big week because there have been some uh, really important new papers just been published in the journal Nature about how birds may be detecting the Earth's magnetic field. Oh, fascinating. It sort of confirms what I describe in the book, but it takes it a stage further. I mean, picking up on what Zito said, I mean, it is just awesome that, you know, <laughs> our fellow creatures, especially, you know, little tiny things, ants and bees and butterflies can do stuff that we can't do except with the help of technology. They can navigate over huge distances and find tiny targets. And there are, of course, there are some human beings still, you know, mostly indigenous peoples, who are still amazingly good at navigation. But I think, I think the truth is that we've become more and more dependent on technology. And the more dependent you are on technology, the less good you are at navigating without it, putting it very crudely. And of course, the huge, the absolutely epoch-making revolution in navigation came with the invention of GPS, which is simultaneously one of the most miraculous technological feats. I mean, it is breathtaking. And, you know, we all now depend on it. But it's also the reason why pretty quickly, the entire human race is turning into a bunch of navigational idiots. <laughs> you know, because we don't need to navigate anymore. We just turn on our iPhone or whatever, and it's all done for us. Yeah, anyway, I, I kind of worry about that, because I, I actually think that navigation is such a fundamental set of skills. Uh, every animal on the face of the planet with the power of motion needs to be able to navigate, even if it's only that far. And we're losing those skills. It's part of our deep, deep kind of heritage and history. And it's part of what makes us human. And we're just kind of jettisoning it. Uh, and we don't really know yet what the consequences of that are going to be. And although there are some scientists uh, who, who are already saying, look, that the bits of your brain that, that do the navigation, you know, the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex, and those are going to shrink if you don't use them. 
And, and we know that that does happen. And, and it may be that actually this is going to be quite serious, but I think it's too soon to say for sure. I just feel almost like at a, at a kind of spiritual level that this is a, a huge, we're stepping off a cliff without even really knowing that we're doing it. It's just so beguiling. You know, you have your little phone and it makes it so easy. And why should you bother? Lots of people now don't know where North is. They don't know, you know, it's crazy. I want to come back to that towards the end because I do think there's this weird intersection between people and animals and kind of looking at that. But before we go deeper on that, because I do want to come back to it, Zito, what do you want, what do you want to know? Let's get let's get into it. Uh, I think, well, you, you just kind of talked a little bit about it, which is one of my first questions was like, why is it there's such a tremendous gulf between how humans can navigate in the world versus how even the smallest animal can navigate. Like a fly just has an incredible idea of like how to go around, you know, places, how to find the things that it needs. Where as a human being, even without technology, it was still already kind of pretty difficult without looking for different stars in the sky for us. Yeah, yeah. Like why is there such an immense gulf between like animal navigation and like human navigation? It's a really, it's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I think, I think, you know, different animals use different navigational systems. And if you look at, you know, vertebrates, you know, sort of mammals and reptiles and birds and what have you, they use a lot of the same navigational tools and techniques that we used to use and that people like the Polynesian Islanders and the Inuit up in the Arctic still use. So I'm not sure that deep down there is a huge difference. It's just that, I mean, I think the truth is that they're mostly better at it than we are. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe they're better at it because their lives depend on it, Yeah, yeah. you know, in a way that ours don't any longer. And I'm sure, as I said before, I think, you know, with the arrival of different kinds of technology, I mean, you know, starting with things like a magnetic compass, we've had the magnetic compass for getting on for a thousand years. And that doesn't seem now like a very powerful piece of technology, but boy, that was huge. You know, when people discovered that you could, you could have a, a little device and you could look at a needle and you could tell which way you were going, that was huge. So I think we're not terrifically well equipped by nature compared to other animals, but we do have, uh, you know, we've got a basic toolkit there that we can use if we want to, but increasingly we've been turning our back on it. And we're not, we're not practicing, we're not learning stuff, uh, we're not learning how to find the North Star, we're not learning how to navigate with a map, and, and at the same time, we're becoming more and more heavily dependent on technology. And I think those two uh, pressures, if you like, are, are responsible for the problems we now face. But it is, I, I mean, you know, uh, it is breathtaking. When you, One of the scientists that I interviewed, it doesn't appear in the book because there was lots of stuff that didn't kind of make the cut, but I met a wonderful scientist at Caltech who works on fruit flies. And, you know, fruit flies are little tiny things, and mostly people think they're just a bit of a nuisance. They end up, you know, wine glass or whatever. But actually, and, and nobody really thought they went very far, but he and his team have discovered that they go huge distances and they're really, really good at finding their way. You know, these tiny, tiny little flies. He's done these extraordinary experiments out in the um, in Death Valley. They put a bit of kind of uh, fruity mess down 
on the desert floor, and then they release flies from different places all around. And amazing, you know, the flies will go kilometers across oh the God. desert. Yeah, and they'll find <laughs> this stuff. No trouble. Isn't a fruit fly's life like in measured in days? Do they just go T there? Truth to tell, I don't know. I think you're probably right, but that means they got to go fast. You got two days to live. You need to do a lot. But it is. I mean, it is breathtaking. And and you know, there are these dragonflies that fly across the Indian Ocean. They migrate across the whole ocean. I mean, you know, we know about the monarch butterfly, and that's amazing. Yeah, but imagine that, flying. I was going to mention that. Yeah, I was I was gonna mention the monarch butterflies because that those tend to be my favorite. Yeah, you know, just like they're I think there are a lot of people's favorite animals in terms of migration. But just like you know, when you're migrating, there's just a ton of them surrounding like a city space, and they're, you just see them in the sky, and they're so beautiful. But I think that leads to the second question: was like for you, what is like what has been the most impressive animal in terms of navigation? Oh, God, yeah, that is. The trouble is my head is just bulging with all these wonders, <laughs> you know. And I could, uh, let me answer it in two different ways. I mean, here's an animal where we actually don't know for sure how it navigates. Uh, we can make some pretty shrewd guesses. But it is just astonishing what it does. And this is the bar-tailed godwit, which is a, a wader, a bird, that breeds in Alaska and then flies across the whole Pacific non-stop to New Zealand. Wow. <laughs> like literally not stopping? Literally non-stop. And wow. this was only discovered about 10 years ago when they first developed little uh, tracking devices that they could attach to birds. And it was a huge sensation, <laughs> as you can imagine. But now, now uh, there's a lot of people who are working with these godwits. And it's great, actually. You can, you can follow it on Twitter, and you can yeah. see their progress as they go along. And it's, <laughs> it's breathtaking. And these birds, they, they fatten themselves up. So that I think they increase their body weight by about a third just to give themselves enough energy to be able to fly that distance. And then they're really clever because they wait until just the right weather front comes in, which is going to give them the wind to help them fly. And then they go for it. And they cover 11, 12,000 kilometers uh, in about a week. Oh, my God. And when they arrive, when they arrive in, in New Zealand, of course, they're absolutely exhausted and they've lost all that extra weight and they're kind of staggering around. Uh, but the amazing thing is that they do this every year. And then they go back again, <laughs> uh, though they take a different route when they go back. They go back along the through China. and Yeah, I feel like trying to fly across the, the ocean again for a week is just too much. You can never <laughs> do that once a year. It's like just one, one way, one way is enough. So, so I, I mean, I think that that is a wonder. I mean, I think that's amazing, though we don't know so much about how they do it. But then if you look at an animal that has been really, really carefully studied for about 50 years, and I wrote about this in Super Navigators. There's an amazing German scientist called Rudiger Weiner, who literally has spent his life with his colleagues working out how the desert ant of the Sahara Desert in North Africa navigates. And, you know, it's a, it's a little ant. It's, it's a bit bigger than the sort of ants we have here in England. It's not, not too big. And it lives in the most inhospitable, miserable environment. It's these salt pans that are flat and featureless and searingly hot. And it's got a nest under the ground. And the entrance to the nest is just a little hole 
big enough to let an ant in or out. And these ants, they come out and they zigzag around. They run very fast because it's so hot they have to keep moving. They zigzag around. Eventually, if they're lucky, they find maybe a dead butterfly and they'll pick up the butterfly. And then the amazing thing is that they will go straight back to the tiny invisible hole in the desert. So for about 100 years, scientists have been wondering how they do that. And while we now know, this to me is a wonder. Here is a creature with a little tiny brain. It's got about 400,000 neurons, whereas we have about 85 billion neurons. So it's got 400,000 neurons. And look what it can do. It's got a compass sense. It can use the sun to steer a steady course, even allowing for the movement of the sun across the sky. It's what's called a time-compensated sun compass. And Vayner and, and his friends have, have shown that that's based on the ant's ability to see the patterns of polarized light in the sky. So it's got a special part of its eye that picks up these polarization patterns. It can count its steps to work out how far it's gone. Oh, my God. Yeah. It can even make allowances for uneven ground. And so when it zigzags around, basically, it's constantly tracking its position using the sun in the sky and using its odometer, counting its steps. So it knows exactly how far it's gone in what direction. And at any given moment, it can always, as it were, point back to where it started. So that's what, what we sailors call dead reckoning. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Can you define that real quick? Because dead reckoning is a big part of this. Well, dead reckoning is basically, that is really important. A lot of animals rely on it, including human beings. And basically, the idea is you keep track of the direction you're headed in and also how far you've gone. So with that information, you can work out where you are in relation to the place you started from. And even if you keep changing course, if you, if you remember each course change, you can, as it were, plot your position. And that's called dead reckoning. And the, and the amazing thing is that, that these ants, and many other animals too, can do this. The desert ant, it's, I haven't finished because the desert ant also has a magnetic compass sense. It can use the wind. It can use its sense of smell. And it's really good at remembering landmarks. So it can find its way using landmarks. I mean, imagine that in a tiny little insect. It's astonishing. When you say landmark, do you mean it'll define, like it might see like a, a pile of sand and it'll know that pile of sand from a different pile of sand? Yeah, exactly. Or maybe there's a little little scrubby bush. Or you could put artificial, I mean, what the scientists have done is they've, they've put artificial landmarks down and moved them around and seen what how the ants react when they move the position of the landmarks. It's absolutely clear that they use the landmarks to work out where they are in relation to the nest entrance and they can follow a course. So, okay, so you've got your bar-tailed godwit, which is a bird doing this amazing thing. We don't know quite how. And we've got this tiny little ant, and I could give you a million other, well, maybe not a million, but a lot of other examples. I'm constantly kind of awestruck by what these, what our fellow creatures can do. It's so interesting because before you got on, we, uh, we were talking about, you know, like something that I was doing when I was in Venice. And I think Venice is a city that forces you to use your navigation oh, skills. Oh boy, doesn't it? Really well. <laughs> like it's just like I was describing it as like a labyrinth. And the problem with a labyrinth is that like if you don't recognize landmarks and know exactly your how many steps you've taken in what direction, you'll get lost very easily. 
So when I was walking around Venice a lot, it, there, there were so many times where I would just stop and I'm just like looking at two identical type of paths. And I'm just like, huh, feel like I came from this way. Like my sense is telling me that I came from. And then I'll take a couple of steps and I'm just like, no, doesn't look that familiar. <laughs> and I have to turn and go the other way. No, I, no Venice, I, you're, I so agree. Venice, it's, especially in the dark. Yeah you need to have an idea of like, I'm walking to the store from this way yeah. <laughs> and I have to come back the exactly. exact same way. But I, uh, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Zero. No, I was going to say, I think one of the big, big uh, obstacles to like thinking about these animals in their navigation is just how different their world is from ours. Like you're talking about like an ant that can see polarized light and can track the movement of the sun. And to me, it's like, I understand the concept of it. But I feel like the way that I experience the world is so different from how an ant experiences the world that is still incredibly strange, even if it's explained very well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. The polarized light thing, you can get some kind of an idea. If you put on polarizing sunglasses and twist your head around, you can see these patterns in the sky. But no, I agree. And then then you've got even weirder things like, you know, um, echolocation in bats and whales. And if bats, I mean, again, bats are staggering because they can fly around in complete darkness, zigzagging around, and they can find they can find their way through a tiny aperture in a, a net or something like that. They can capture insects on the wing. And this is all done by bouncing ultrasonic signals off stuff. It's complete, totally. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just surreal. And then, you know, one, one of the really weird, I won't say it's a discovery because it hasn't really yet been totally pinned down, but it looks very much as if homing pigeons, if you take a homing pigeon away from its home loft, maybe 300 kilometers or so, um, to a place it's never, ever been before, completely unfamiliar, and release it, it'll very often be able to find its way home, which is just bizarre. I mean, how, how could that work? You can, you can even anesthetize. You can, you can put the pigeon, make it unconscious, and take it on a journey and release it, and it'll still work out where it is and how to get home. And the theory that is now kind of getting traction is freaky, I think, really freaky. <laughs> it's, it's that they're using their sense of smell. <laughs> and it's not, it's not, you might think, oh, okay, so they're smelling a wind or something coming from their home. It's not that. The theory is that when they're young, sitting in their home loft, the wind is blowing across the home loft from all the points of the compass, and each different wind direction will bring to the nose of the young bird a different bouquet of smells. So that when the bird is released in an unfamiliar place, it will sniff the air and, go, and it'll say, ah, I recognize that bouquet. I used, to get, I used to pick up that smell when the wind was blowing from the northwest. So that must mean to get home, I'm going to have to fly southeast. Wow. Like before, before this, I, I actually brought up the pigeons because they were my first or one of my entryways into like animal navigation because they were played a, like they played a role in World War One because That's they were right. being used as messenger pigeons. Yeah, and it's because of that sense of direction that you could take them anywhere and they could find their way home. 
And they, but that, again, that's such a ridiculous thing that it almost seems that you're talking about fantasy if you were writing this in the book of this pigeon is finding its way because it, it smells the different winds. Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, in fact, you know, the the Italian scientist who did the first experiment that suggested they were using their sense of smell actually didn't believe it himself. He thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> he then eventually did a, a whole series of experiments and sort of persuaded himself. You know, hey, it must be that. <laughs> Though, having said that, there's a, there's a, an American scientist who's come up with a completely different theory, which could also, I mean, it, it doesn't, uh, I mean, both could be true. They could both be using their sense of smell. And what this guy says is that maybe they're using infrasound, very, very low frequency sound that we can't hear. And this is actually, I think this is even stranger because the theory <laughs> is that, and I hope I'm, I, I'm describing this right, but all the time, if you have a, a seismometer, you know, if you're listening for little tiny earthquake sounds, all the time there are little tiny, what, what are called micro seisms running through the earth. Very, very minor earthquake things, which are caused by, amongst other things, storms in the open ocean. And these will travel down the water column into the ocean floor. They will spread through the ocean floor until they get to the continental margin, and then they'll pass through the continental rock. So that even if you're in the middle of a continent, you know, you might be in Omaha, Nebraska, or you might be in, you know, somewhere in the middle of Russia, even there you can pick up these little things. And this guy's theory is that each location on the Earth's surface kind of rings like a bell in response to these little earthquake things, and therefore has its own characteristic infrasound signature. Now, infrasound ca carries huge distances, and it's known that pigeons can detect infrasound, and he thinks that maybe when you release a pigeon in an unfamiliar place, it just, it listens for the characteristic, like the, the note of a bell or something, and it picks that up and, ah, home's that way. <laughs> <laughs> that it, is insane. Yeah, it is insane. Isn't it? Now it's very speculative, and it's it's uh, you know it's controversial. But there is some fascinating evidence in support of it that goes back to the time when the Concorde supersonic airliner was flying, because there were a number of occasions back then when big organized pigeon races ended in complete disaster when the birds didn't get home at all. Apparently, that's called a race is being smashed. So these <laughs> races were smashed. And it turned out that the scientists discovered it very often, these smashed races coincided with the passage of the Concorde supersonic airline. And that his theory is that the shock waves from this big aircraft whizzing at Mach 2 or whatever could have really wrecked the infrasound equipment of the pigeons. That's not entirely too different of like how big freights in oceans and like the you know the explosions yeah. of like warships mess up the the navigation of like whales. Yeah, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because yeah, it's very likely that that the infrasound is important in 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 underwater navigation, though we aren't sure about that. 
I have a quick question about percentage of brain, David. Like one of the things when you're talking about the fire ant or you're talking about pigeons, like these are obviously creatures that all have much smaller brains than we do. Do they use a lot of their brain to do this? And is that driven by survival evolution or is it is do they have a lot more going on uh, and that we just don't know about? It's a good question. I'm not sure I'm really well qualified to answer that. I mean, I think if you look at insect brains, I mean, insect brains are all pretty much alike and they contain two structures called the mushroom bodies and the central complex, which do take up quite a large part of the brain. And those are now, we know, very important for navigation. I think it's probably fair to say that insects do devote quite a lot of their little tiny brains to solving their navigational problems. Pigeons, pigeons probably quite a lot too, but then actually human beings quite a lot. Because one of the fascinating things that's come out of all the work that neuroscientists are doing on humans and on you know rats and mice and stuff is that it looks as if the bits of the brain that enable us to navigate physical space are also really really important to help us navigate conceptual space oh. even to the point where and again this is a little bit speculative but but there's there is some evidence that our ability to imagine alternative futures to make plans even to exercise our creativity, artistic creativity, those processes seem to depend quite heavily on the efficient functioning of the navigational circuits in our brains. I think what this points towards is the possibility that, you know, spatial navigation is kind of the tip of the iceberg here, that, that you know, the, the kind of neural circuitry that supports our ability to find our way around in space is actually doing a whole lot of other important stuff too. And that is probably true in other animals. I feel like you just put an end to like the big philosophical conflict between the mind and the body. Actually, that same space for the body is reserved for the conceptual mind as well. And I was like, wow, that's a hundred years or hundreds of years of philosophical debate just gone in an instant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, oh, I wish, I wish. But, but, you know, but I think, I seriously, I think, you know, so to speak, watch this space, because I think that the, the neuroscientists are working really hard on all this stuff. And I think, I mean, first of all, I don't think it'll be very long before the guys who are working on insect brains are able to describe in pretty full detail exactly how they take a sensory input, you know, like polarized light patterns, and turn it into a motor command like go left or go right. So, you know, tracing the whole neural pathway from the sensory input to the motor output, which is really, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty major stuff. And eventually, I mean, it's, we're a long way from doing that with more complicated mammalian brains, but I think, you know, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, I, one of the things that's been fascinating to me was that study from a couple of years ago about London cab drivers. Oh, Are you yeah. familiar with that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, do you, mind ta- do you mind talking about that a little bit? Because it's a little bit of this crossover about the animal navigation and human navigation, which I think the interesting thing to me about this whole world is like, we're all amazed the fact that animals can do this, but as humans... We also are doing things all the time, but we've just gotten kind of far away from it, like we were talking about before. Absolutely. No, the, the, the London taxi driver stuff, there have been a whole lot of studies, but the famous one involved looking at 
the brains of London cab drivers in um, magnetic resonance imaging machines and comparing them with the brains of London bus drivers. Now, the point about this is that London taxi drivers have to learn it's an incredibly difficult, laborious process. They have to basically learn their way around the whole of the city of London and be able to ask, answer very detailed questions about how to get from any point to any other point. And just to be clear, London is a much, much more difficult city than, say, anywhere in America because it was yeah. built hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah, it's a nightmare. It's almost as bad as Venice. <laughs> <laughs> so these guys literally spend two or three years going around London on motorbikes, learning, and it's called the knowledge. It's a, it is an extraordinary thing. So, whereas a bus driver, of course, is also driving every day, you know, spending the same amount of time behind the wheel, but big difference, they're following the same route every time. So, the, the clever idea behind the experiment was to see whether the bus drivers and the taxi drivers' brains looked any different. And it turned out, sure enough, that the, that the part of the hippocampus deep in the brain, which is known to be an area that's very, very important, both in memory and in navigation, that part of the hippocampus in the taxi drivers was a lot bigger and fatter than it was in the bus drivers. But also, interestingly, when the taxi drivers retired, that plump bit of the hippocampus went got small again. So what this seemed to show, and I think does show, is that it's kind of use it or lose it. You know, you you exercise the relevant bit of your brain and it'll go, and if you don't exercise it, it'll go. The slightly scary thing is that, you know, lots and lots of older people now are getting Alzheimer's disease, which is horrible. And one of the very first symptoms of Alzheimer's is disorientation. Very often, the first thing that seems to go is their ability to kind of find their way around. And guess what? The place that Alzheimer's seems to often attack first is the hippocampus. So some scientists are saying, well, look, maybe we can actually help people uh, kind of protect themselves against Alzheimer's by exercising their hippocampus, by doing lots of good navigation, keeping it nice and plump. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but I have spoken to some experts on Alzheimer's who said, look, even if it's not true that you can prevent Alzheimer's by exercising your navigational skills and building up your hippocampus, it's probably true that if you have a nice plump hippocampus, it will take longer for the damaging effects of Alzheimer's to be felt. It'll give you a bit of resilience. So I think the jury's out on some of this, but, but it's pretty clear that if you want to preserve the parts of your brain that are critical to your ability to navigate, you know, using your wits rather than GPS or whatever, then um, you need to do that. And then that will give you this, you know, your, the, the relevant bit of your brain, the hippocampus and the surrounding areas will be bigger and stronger and uh, that'll be good for you. I wonder how we can work that into like some fitness messaging of like well, exercise your body, exercise your hippocampus. Zito, I'm counting on you. You've got, you've got, you've got all your followers. You can, you need to get it out there. 
Besides your hippocampus, it will yeah. send you down the line. You'll have to draw some pictures for them. Yeah, it's going to have to be like an infographic of like fat hippocampus. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Fat hippocampus. Absolutely. <laughs> fat is good. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a, I have a couple of just specific examples from the book I'd love to hear about. I'm really interested. I came across the work on the loggerhead turtles. And one of the things about that, which was interesting to me, was just how many different types of navigation they use over the course of it. And I think this kind of gets to what I want to talk a little bit about is the idea of animals kind of, we see these animals as doing like, oh my God, they're doing all this amazing stuff. But these are things that we mostly do and have either done or before or lost and just kind of like what that feeling is. But first, let's tell me the story of the loggerhead turtles and kind of what they use to start. Well, there's a, there's a, a wonderful um, American scientist called Ken Lohman down at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And he has spent most of his life studying, uh, well, not just turtles, but a lot of it on turtles and loggerheads in particular. And what he's shown is that, you know, when the little tiny turtle hatchling emerges from its egg and scuttles down the beach to get in the sea, if it's lucky, he's managed to show how it navigates that part of its journey and how it navigates to get out through the surf into the deep water. All of these are different systems. And then eventually, these loggerhead turtle hatchlings will embark on a journey. If they're, if they're born on the Atlantic coast of Florida, for example, they will go right round the whole of the North Atlantic, right up round the coast of Europe and Africa, and then back to Florida. And this may take several, well, many years. And And while they're doing that, it used to be believed that they just passively floated in the Gulf Stream and just got carried, you know, willy nilly. Ryan, but but it's very clear that that is not the case. They wouldn't make it if they just drifted. So it turns out that these little hatchlings have a magnetic sense. They're tuned into the Earth's magnetic field, and they can somehow tell roughly where they are on this long circular journey around the whole ocean basin. And they can swim actively to make sure that they stay in the currents that are going to be most favorable to them and will help them get back home. It's not enough just to let the currents carry them. They've got to make sure they stay in the current. And and this is what their magnetic sense seems to enable them to do. And then eventually, when they've come back to where they originated and they start to breed, the females find their way back to the beach where they were born or very close to it, usually, And again, that seems to be because they imprint on the, if you like, the magnetic signature of that bit of beach, and they can find their way back to it by detecting the exact magnetic parameters that define the position of that beach. And it's not totally accurate. I mean, you know, we're not talking about getting back to within a few meters of where they started, but but certainly a a lot of the time it'll be within a mile or two which after a journey of 10,000 miles and many years around an entire ocean is pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, I think we can give them that space of like a mile or two. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. fair. You can use a nice yeah. margin of error. Like you're fine. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think we can we can give them a little <laughs> bit of applause. You know, um, but 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 it's probably. I mean, Ken Lohman, uh, whom I interviewed for the book, 
would be the first to admit we don't know the whole story because it's probable that there are other senses involved. Maybe they use their sense of smell. Maybe they're listening again. It could be infrasound. That could be a factor. There's a lot more we don't know. And actually, I mean, I'm a sailor, and I'm one of the things that really, really fascinates me is the way some of the big marine creatures like whales navigate. So if you take humpback whales, for example, you've got a population that lives part of the year in the waters around Antarctica, and they go down there to feed on all the krill and they get nice and fat. And then they migrate to their breeding grounds, which are right up around the equator in the middle of the Pacific or the middle of the Atlantic. And by attaching tracking devices to them, it's been shown that when they make these journeys of thousands of miles across the open ocean, they go really straight. You know, they, they're not messing about. They're not sort of rambling. They go straight, and they go straight for particular island groups where they turn up every year, like around Samoa or Fiji or wherever. And the question, it's a really interesting question. How are they doing that? Because for us, navigating on the open ocean, until the advent of, uh, well, I guess, you know, when celestial navigation was finally perfected in the 18th century with the help of sextants and chronometers and what have you, well, we could do it then. And it's even easier now with GPS. But for most of the history of humanity, sailors, once they were out of sight of land, were pretty quickly not very sure where they were and certainly couldn't have done what these whales are doing. So what are they doing? We just don't know. And I just think it's awesome. And they're not the only ones. You've got great white sharks. They tracked a great white shark all the way from the Cape of Good Hope, southern tip of Africa, right across the Indian Ocean to the west coast of Australia in more or less a straight line, at which point it turned around and went all the way back again in a straight line. <laughs> it's a great white shark. How is it doing that? That's thousands of miles of open ocean. A tuna, bluefin tuna, elephant seals, they're all doing this kind of stuff. And we don't know how. I love it. <laughs> the, mis <laughs> the mysteries are, are almost the best part of it, I think. <laughs> totally. Uh, well, we do have to wrap up relatively soon. Zito, is there anything else you want to ask before we go? No, I, I feel like the that idea of like, how are they doing this? We just don't know. <laughs> it's, <just like> a perfect, <laughs> it's a pretty good example, right? Summation yeah. of everything. It's like, there's a lot of wild navigation happening. We have a lot of theories, but like, who knows? They could just be doing whatever they want. Absolutely. I, the great thing is, I, I think the thing I find is it's kind of humbling. Yeah, it's very humbling. We think we're so damn clever. You know, we yeah. think we're the lords of creation. We think we've got it all, but we really don't. I mean, there are lots and lots of animals, even little animals like those ants that could do stuff we can't do without the help of instruments. And, and that, I just think, is awesome. Yeah, I think actually one of the things I'm fascinated by, and this is what I was, I think, trying to get at my earlier thing, is that one of the great things about learning more about animals is that we, um, instead of anthropomorphizing them and making them like human-like, we can really appreciate them for these different things than us. And I know this is something I've struggled with a little bit. This may be personal, but like I, you know, have thought about meat eating or, or eating animals for a long time. And like when you learn things about this, like animals and you're like, wow, these are incredible creatures and all this other stuff. It makes you think a little bit more about that aspect 
of the human relationship to animals and just how we aren't, I mean, we are the dominant species on the planet and clearly we've left a lot of uh, destruction in our wake, but it starts to open up your thought process on like, there are a lot of things we really don't know from even a, a animal navigation, but then a communication. And, and again, going back to their brains, all those standpoints, there's just so much we don't know about them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we frankly, we, we, we've got to take some pretty urgent steps to fix things. Otherwise, we're going to be frying. And I think part of the problem that we've got is that there are a lot of people who are still skeptical about climate change and loss of biodiversity and all the, these great problems. And part of the reason that, that they, they're skeptical is because they just haven't got it. We're not that special. You know, we're part of this huge, intricate, wonderful web of creation. And I, I don't mean creation, you know, like a creationist, but, you know, like <laughs> we're part of this extraordinarily complex, intricate, interconnected web of, of beings. And we just can't continue to behave as if the rest of nature doesn't really matter or only exists to serve our purposes. Because if we do, we're going to kill ourselves off, but we're also going to make a hell of a mess of everything else. And I think that that has to be, I mean, from my perspective, I mean, one of the great, great sort of ethical challenges now is how we respond to that and how we translate whatever conclusions we reach into practical politics. And Oh, well, that's a whole other subject, of course. Don't <laughs> <laughs> no, get too far down that way. No. Well, great. Thank you so much. Oh, before we go, David, I always try to ask our guests if there's something that outside of your natural kind of uh, world, especially outside of animal navigation, navigation that you're super interested in right now. Is there something that you're kind of semi-obsessed with outside of your normal life? Well, uh, I mean, the, something I'm actually working on at the moment is to do with, I mean, this is a, this is a bit of a downer. But it's so important and interesting. Is I'm, I'm I'm doing a lot of research on the history of the slave trade, and how that worked, and what was going on. And so I don't know whether it'll turn into a book or anything. But and it's certainly very different from other stuff that I've done. But but uh, curiously enough, it is. It's I, I came into it because of navigation. I started reading about the there was a, a kind of weird, crazy naval British naval officer who in the 1820s more or less mapped the whole coast of Africa. And in, while he was doing it, he was really, really outraged to discover what was going on with the slave trade, particularly on, in East Africa, actually. And uh, he got heavily involved in efforts to, to stop it. But I started reading more and more and discovering what a big, complex, terrifying, and unfortunately still horribly relevant subject it is. I actually have might have like a wonderful resource for you in one of my one of the people that I follow. He's a historian, Liam Hogan. I don't know him. He has the best, I guess, like the best brain when it comes to like the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, like he just I knows every. Yeah, he he knows every single thing. It's like almost every day he'll list something else about like the transatlantic slave trade, and I'm just like, I did not know that. So Liam Ho Hogan, H-O-G-A-N. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's actually Irish, yeah. It first started for him of like trying to dispel that Irish myth that's always used by white supremacists, like Irish people were slaves as well, into yeah. like this long thing that now he does like as a historian about the slave trade. And he, he has like all these like 
wonderful resources about like the routes and like the different ways that it's transformed. Yeah, he's incredible. Well, listen, if I can't track him down, maybe I could direct message you. Zito and yeah, message yeah. me. I will literally yeah. send you a Twitter, like because I'm, 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 I'm going to be a follower now. <laughs> <laughs> Magic of the internet. Yeah, <laughs> get ready for a lot of poetry from Zito. He's really good at it. He shares <laughs> quite a bit. True. Yeah. Well, I saw, I saw you quoting Derrida. Oh yes, about forgiveness. On forgiveness, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Really, I've never yeah. seen that before. It's fascinating. Yeah, he is. Yeah. My, he's like I've said. I said at the beginning of the show, but he's one of my favorite <laughs> Twitter followers I've ever followed. Um, okay, we got to we we got to wrap up here. But I want to say thanks again to Zito for coming on and your great topic of animal navigation, which I learned about a lot about. And again to David for coming on. And please go get David's book. It's called Super Navigators: Exploring the Wonder of How Animals Find Their Way. And thanks to both of you for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been thank terrific. You for having- Such good questions, and great to meet you both. <laughs> All right, that was fascinating. Um, that guy, man, he's got a lot of interesting stories just kind of stuck in his brain. I'm always I'm always shocked by people who can remember that much stuff because my brain just does not do that. But anyway, uh, thank you to David Barry, to Zito for coming on. Thank you to the Gregory Brothers for my theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson, who does some help behind the scenes at the podcast. Um, and thank you to you most, most for listening. Um, as, as I've said many times, um, this is kind of a labor of love, something I'm doing as a test. And I've been really enjoying it, but um, I would love to hear more about your your thoughts on it. I would love to hear if you have ideas for guests, if you have ideas for anything else. You can shout out to me on my Twitter handle at Gavin Purcell, G-A-V-I-N-P-U-R-C-E-L-L. Please tell people about the podcast and then also rate the podcast on iTunes. I'm hoping this is, you know, the beginning of something interesting for me because it's been super fun. And I hope you come back next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.